you've got kids going through puberty and experiencing the hormones of puberty for the first time, but the largest determinant of their mental health is the social context which puberty is happening, not just hormone switching on or off. So I think at every stage I went through in the book, I was just so blown away that hormones were kind of opening a window, but what was the most important thing was just other people. That was always the determinant of health. Hello, everyone, and welcome. It's Dr. Anna Kabeka, and I am the Girlfriend Doctor. It is my mission and my passion to help women live better lives before, during, and after menopause. So welcome to the Girlfriend Doctor podcast, an intimate place for intimate conversation. And hey, I'm here for you. You can ask or tell me anything. And I've received some great questions in. And remember that this is a safe place where we can pull back the curtain on all things related to sexual health, libido, PMS, menopause, you name it. We are talking about it. We are shining the light on overall wellness, mind, body, and spirit. And it's so important that we do this together in community because community is life-giving. Community is oxytocin building. And community is empowering healthy community. But where does it start, really? Healthy community starts with you. Starts with you putting your oxygen mask on, getting healthy, knowing that you are worth it and you are so valuable. Valuable. And plus, you, wherever you are today, you can be better tomorrow. Without a doubt, you can be better tomorrow. And we've gone through some trying times right now, and we may have had some experiences with fear or maybe a, a loss of, of self-control, of relapsing of flashbacks. A, I mean, the list goes on, right? I know because I get it right? Willpower issues, um, stress, fear, depression. And we may feel like, you know, the world just doesn't look or feel safe anymore. And so that is a, a sentiment that we are completely aware of and here to combat because our bodies are resilient. And as we wake, awaken to our own reality, as we become more aware with how much potential we have and what works for us, so discernment, what works for us and what works against us, how we set our mind in a direction with goals and light and dreams that help us succeed. I mean, our brain is incredibly neuroplastic. And so that's what I really want to talk about today with you here on the Girlfriend Doctor podcast. I have a beautiful guest that's joining me today. Her name is Dr. Sarah McKay. She is about nature, nurture, and neuroplasticity. She's a neuroscientist and a science communicator who specializes in translating brain science research into simple, actionable strategies for peak performance. So today we're going to talk about how women and men are different and what makes our brains different, as well as how our hormones affecting our brains, turning on our emotions and our behaviors and how we can be powerful over them. So I'm excited about this. We're going to get into some neurobiology and some great neuroscience. And here we go. Dr. Sarah McKay, how are you? Thank you for joining us today. 
I am great. Thank you for inviting me to chat. You are welcome. For everyone listening, Dr. Sarah is in Sydney, Australia. So she's in the morning time. She's gonna, we're gonna toast right now. Cheers. This is the Girlfriend Doctor podcast. So cheers to your coffee. I'm having a little afternoon glass of wine and we're toasting. Mm-hmm. As we get started to have this really um, great, heady, (laughs) no pun intended, conversation about women's brains, men's brains, but seriously, women's brains. So Dr. Mackay, Dr. Sarah Mackay, her book, The Women's Brain Book, The Neuroscience of Health, Hormones, and Happiness, explores women's health from womb to tomb. Do you all see why I love this woman, why I absolutely had to have her on my um, podcast? So Sarah, tell us about yourself. Tell us what got you started in this. And, and I, I can't wait to dig in. Yeah. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. Um, I'm a New Zealander. I grew up in, in New Zealand. I live in, I've lived in Sydney, Australia for about 20 years. Um, it's a nice part of the world to be quarantined, but hard because my mum's in New Zealand. So it would like, like borders to open up again one day. We're recording this in mid-April 2020, just for context. I guess I was one of those kids always, I was very fortunate to grow up in the part of the world I did and um, had a very, very happy childhood, loved learning, always enjoyed reading books. And when I got to in my first year of university, a psychology lecture I was in, they recommended we read a book by Oliver Sacks called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, which if you have read the book, you would... You will, you will know the book. It's, um, he's, he's a neurologist and wrote these wonderful, an amazing writer and wrote these wonderful case studies of all of the very unusual things that can happen to people when their brains go wrong or malfunction. And I was so captivated by this, this idea. And this is the early 90s. So neuroscience as a discipline in universities was very, very new. We were still kind of pulling together the neuro component from different, diff- different disciplines. Um, but there was a pulling together the neurodisciplines from these these different departments. And there was a new neuroscience degree set up. So um, at a university down the road from me, Otago University, or about four, four hours down the road from where I lived in Christchurch at the time. So I headed off to study neuroscience and that was sort of the early 90s. And it's really been kind of my North Star ever since. It's such a fascinating, deep, broad subject. Now, I was incredibly fortunate to win a scholarship to Oxford University in the UK and I did a master's and then a PhD there taking a look really at these ideas back then we didn't use the word neuroplasticity even in the research lab but was really interested in what guides the wiring up of neurons in the brain brain cells how do they form their sort of synaptic partners and and I was looking then very old-fashioned question now was it nature or was it nurture is it kind of genetic is it innate or is it environmental and experiential and it's kind of a bit of both was the answer. And then you know, I did it, moved to Australia, did a couple of postdocs here and brought my Irish husband from Oxford with me. He's an economist. And oh. um, we, we thought we'd come to Sydney for a year. So oh, that'd be a nice place to go and live for a year. That was in 2002. <laughs> and while I was working in research in the universities here, I just became, was starting to get first loved neuroscience, but was frustrated with academia and the trying to get papers published and trying to get research grants. And I felt like everywhere I turned, I was up, there was all these gatekeepers and I couldn't really kind of, I didn't have the freedom to kind of think about what I wanted to think about because in academia and research, which is fundamentally necessary, and you probably know this, you have to become an expert on such a tiny niche 
I felt like I, was, I had FOMO of all the other neuroscience out there. And I eventually, after about five years of sort of soul searching, hung up my lab coat and set up my own business and science communications because I saw there was a real gap and a thirst for people wanting to understand about what was happening in the neuroscience research lab. And there, there's just been this growing interest in the brain. What do we understand? What is, where is contemporary neuroscience and how can we apply that to people's lives? And so that's kind of what I've done since I had my boys, one of whom just walked in there. And I, I suppose along the way, they had various opportunities open up to me and I was approached by a book publisher who said, why don't you write a book? And I went, oh, God, I'm not writing a book. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of hard work. <laughs> and I don't really have any good ideas. And she's a very charismatic woman, hat tip to Jeanne Rickmans, who's now my book agent. And she said to me, well, why don't we just meet over coffee and have a chat? And I was like, oh, okay, I can do that. Back in the days when you could do things like that. So I um, <laughs> she said to me, what have you ever, I said, I haven't got an idea for a book. Um, she said, well, what have you ever written for an audience that's really resonated? And you'll find this interesting. So I was writing a lot for the ABC here in Australia, Australian Broadcasting Corporation, and I'd written an article on menopause and brain fog. And we had this enormous outpouring of emails of people saying, oh my goodness, that is me. And the idea behind this piece was the concept of brain fog, which I guess is a colloquial term. Women going through menopause often experience that, but often a lot of women, and you probably know this, a lot of women think it's the first signs of Alzheimer's or dementia. Right, right. Like, oh my God, I'm forgetting everything. I'm, I'm 48 and I'm getting dementia already. And really, it was saying, look, this is quite normal. We don't really understand there's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario about what exactly is the cause. Is it directly related to hormones? Is it related to hot flashes waking you up at night so you're sleep deprived? All of these kind of chicken and egg scenarios. But it was kind of like, it's probably not Alzheimer's, it's probably menopause. And so I was telling my book agent this, and she went, oh my God, you have to write a book about menopause. And at the time, I was 41, and I was like, I'm not writing a book about menopause. I'm 41. That was something my mum once did. I'm 45 now. Different attitude. I have a bit of a different attitude to period <laughs> as I sit here sweating. Well, experience is a experience is a great teacher. <laughs> yeah, and, and actually writing and and but anyway, so I thought, well, look, I don't want to write a book on menopause. And then she said, Oh, what about baby brain? And she just kind of said in an offhand way, was baby brain a thing like when you're pregnant, you get a bit foggy. And I was like, well, I'm from New Zealand, we don't do brain fog there, um, baby brain there, because we have this wonderful prime minister who's had a baby and is clearly a superstar. But also baby brain was never a thing that I'd ever heard of. It wasn't a concept in my world. And I went, oh, look, I don't know whether, it, I, I don't think there's any plausible neuroscience explanation for that. And, and then I went, oh, my God, I've never thought before about all of these aspects of women's lives through the lens of neurobiology. So I've been a neuroscientist for going on 25 years, female, owner of a female body and brain since I was born. And because neuroscience is so broad and deep, I had never thought about puberty in the brain, periods, the, the menstrual cycle in the brain, pregnancy in the brain. Uh, and I thought, well, maybe I could write a book taking a look at all of these aspects of women's lives through the lens of neurobiology. And we were like, well, there's the book idea. It was not planned. It just sort of happened. And, and I think part of the beauty of me having no agenda going into this is like, I'm a neuroscientist. I just want to understand a lot of these ideas is that I, I just very much went in taking a look at what does the latest neuroscience research say on all these different 
different points in the lifespan and I just read them and wrote them and talked to loads of really interesting people and that was kind of how the book came about. I love it. I think it's great. And especially you said the first thing, let's get some definitions for our audience too, is the neuroplasticity. Let's talk about that. You said we didn't have that word way back when you were at Oxford, but now we see it, we see it everywhere. So let's talk about neuroplasticity and what that means. And then I definitely want to get into the stages of our brain life. Look, neuroplasticity is this kind of umbrella term used now in neuroscience. Back then, I was looking at brain development, the kind of the early phases of brain development after birth. So those first few prenatal, uh, postnatal sort of days, weeks, months, like the brain is obviously developing and growing and being shaped and sculpted. And that shaping and sculpting and developing and, and you know, which neuron wires up to which neuron is, is now, is, you know, the kind of the blueprint is laid out by our, our genetics and then experience, the, the kind of experiences we have shape and sculpt that original plan. So we're all kind of born into this world with this brain that's like, hey, well, here I am to learn about who I need to be in this world I'm living in and then the experiences that you have in those very first years kind of lay a lot of the foundations for how you're, you know, teaching you, adapting to the world in which you live and that ability of the brain to adapt and to be shaped and sculpted by either innate patterns of electrical activity very, very early in development, prenatally, and then throughout the lifespan being shaped and sculpted by the events that happen essentially is neuroplasticity. Now, if you want to get into the kind of the neurobiology of this word, it kind of encompasses a whole lot of different terms. It encompasses the birth of new neurons, which we would call neurogenesis, which largely takes place during childhood, dips down in the teenage years. And then if it does happen in adult humans, is very, very rare. A lot of people think, this word neuroplasticity is all about neurogenesis and the birth of new neurons. But it's very, very debated within contemporary neuroscience the degree in which new neurons are born throughout the adult lifespan. If it happens, it's probably a bit very rare. The greatest degree of plasticity that occurs throughout the lifespan is kind of the changes in the strength of connections between neurons. So how kind of reliable is that connection how well worn is that path might be another kind of way to think about that how efficient is that network and so that's kind of the level of uh, the level of the kind of the connections or the synapses between neurons we could like look you know zoom all the way into the brain and look at what happens between particular neurons or we could zoom out and at some points in the lifespan we actually see structural changes take place in the brain that we can visualize with an MRI machine. And interestingly, one of the greatest structural changes that we see in women's adult brains, obviously brains are shaped and sculpted all the way through childhood, especially during the teenage years. And then if we were to kind of take images of the brain, we wouldn't see many sort of large structural or plastic changes taking place through most of adulthood. Um, And hopefully when you reach later in life, You don't see too many degenerative changes. But one of the most significant changes we do see in the structure of women's brains is during your first pregnancy, which is some research which has come out sort of in around late 2016 from a group in the Netherlands um, that showed there were were significant structural changes in the cortex, the kind of outer wrapping of the brain during a woman's first pregnancy 
And really interestingly, it was the parts of the brain that are involved with social cognition, with the ability to think and, and understand how other people think and feel. So that's a plastic change that takes place, sculpted by the experience of pregnancy. We think most likely the actual hormonal shifts of pregnancy rather than the act of mothering within those first few weeks. So we see all different kinds of structural changes taking place from like all the way down at the level of kind of like cell to cell, all the way out to being able to see changes take place. So neuroplasticity kind of encompasses all of those of the brain and it responding to the things that happen to it. I think that, you know, that is fascinating. And there's so many directions I want to go with you on this conversation. I, I, let's talk a little bit about that early brain development and bonding time period where we are increasing, like increasing the bonding, increasing the oxytocin attachment and how that is, I think it's so important to understand how that's important so that we don't have addictive behaviors as, as an adult isolation, oxytocin deficiency or resistance. I call it an oxytocin resistance syndrome that creates an oxytocin seeking or dopamine seeking type of behavior, which in, in, you know, I think that there's, there's certainly an interaction there, but I'm looking forward to you to, to help me explain and make sense of this. And then we'll, we'll go into the perimenopausal brain. And I definitely want to hit on that, but that early brain development and how that attachment is critical so that we can then understand, well, why we maybe be experiencing this as an adult. Let me just, as a physician, as a, as a women's health physician, integrative medicine, and a gynecologist, when I have a client who has, you know, significant, you know, whatever it is that she's dealing with, my history includes like, how was your mom's pregnancy with you? How were your early formative years? I mean, it's just, it's just, you know, st- whether I'm dealing with a client for just hot flashes or cancer or autoimmune disease or whatever it is, I want to know those early formative years. And if there's any, you know, if there's any energetic shifts that need to be, to be addressed there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the re- the research in this space is really, really interesting. And I suppose, it, you know, for a long time, a lot of people working with adults who are troubled for what for whatever reason, whether they have mental health issues or physical health issues, you know, this idea, oh, let's look at your early childhood, you know, like, is that kind of a bit Freudian? But the research now is kind of playing out, um, thanks in, in large part to a lot of very detailed longitudinal studies of the lifespan, where we've been able to take a look and study children from birth all the way through the lifespan. And I think it's really important to be able to look at how they have been done very carefully instead of just taking a bit of a Freudian, tell me about your mother and your childhood, because we never, you know, we had these concepts, but we didn't have any good solid evidence backing them up. And longitudinal studies following large cohorts, there's a fantastic one that comes out of Dunedin, New Zealand, where I went to university, called the Dunedin Study, which has followed over a 1,000 people who were born in 1974 every year or two throughout their entire lifespan. They're all now in their mid-late 40s. And there's been no gaps for the data to fall into, and that's where the beauty of those studies have come wow. from. Instead of relying on people's stories about their experience with their mother, we can actually look at every every aspect of these kids from their than our adults, from their, their you know their dental records to their school studies to their to every sort of detail of their family history. You know, they've had MRI scans through to mental health kind of reports done when they're looking at, you know, what's their income? Who have they married to? What are their children like? So every aspect of their lives has been well studied. And now we have very clear 
evidence that yes, what happens in those first few years of life are a strong determinant, not the only determinant, but they are a large determinant to your kind of your mental, your physical health. And without wanting to use this word too, I'm using this word loosely, sort of success and, and health and well-being throughout the lifespan. And it appears that those early years of your life do kind of get in under your skin and affect your biology. Now, you talk a bit about oxytocin. I think that that's really important, but I don't think it's quite as simple as there being one hormone that's kind of playing a role in there. It would be great if that was the case. But Totally agree. Children are kind of, as I say, we're kind of born into this world, and you kind of might remember from high school biology, you know, animals adapt to the world in which they live in and, and humans and our little brains when they're born are no different. So a baby is born into a world that must kind of listen in and learn about the world in which it's born into, particularly in those first few years of life and go, well, this is who I am. This is the world I live in and this is how I must shape and adapt to be. And if you are born into a warm, loving, nurturing family with a lot of interaction with caregivers whether or not that's a birth mother or not it doesn't really matter so long as there is a lot of interaction a lot of attention a lot of what we would call serve and turn reactions every time a baby makes a kind of not and it's possible every time but when children look at you and smile someone smiles back and as they learn to kind of go ga ga make noises then there is serve and turn interactions and that baby is you know communicating in a loving way well that's great that child understands what kind of world it's born into, what is when children are born in worlds in which they are neglected, in which there is a great degree of what we might call toxic stress, when the child is born into a highly stressful environment. Now, that's when we kind of see the neglect or the toxic stress of the early years getting kind of in under people's skin. Now, what is the reason for that? It would be nice if we could say, oh, yes, it's like the child wasn't, you know, the, the lack of interaction with a warm caregiver meant that the, the oxytocin system didn't grow and develop and therefore that's what they're seeking for the rest of the lifespan. I don't think it's probably as simple as that. I think there's whole brain, body, physiological systems involved in there, which genes are switched on and off, how is the brain wired up. In particular, the stress response system is going through this very plastic critical period of development in the kind of couple of months before birth and in those first two years after birth. So the, the entire stress response system, the autonomic nervous system, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal system, which produces cortisol, that's all going through a period of development. And if that child is born into an incredibly stressful world, it's living in an environment where it's stress its stress response system is developing in a highly stressed way. So then that child thinks, well, I live in a pretty stressful world um, and will always then respond in a very kind of hypervigilant, stressed way, you know, kind of going forward in the lifespan. So there's a whole lot of things going on. We're still trying to unpack the kind of the cause and effect of a lot of these. I think it's probably quite wise to point, you know, we've, we've underestimated the importance of the early years and kind of building the right kind of infrastructure around kids, in particular children that are born into highly stressed, perhaps a lot of neglect, perhaps extreme poverty. They grow up in these very toxic, stressed environments. But I think it's important to point out that that doesn't mean you sort of, that's it for life. I spoke to um, Richie, Professor Richie Poulton, who heads up the Dunedin study in New Zealand, which is this longitudinal study of the lifespan. 
and and we were talking a lot about hey, they can go back and look at the first couple of years of a child's life and predict with a great degree of accuracy which child will end up in prison, which child will end up with mental health problems, which child will end up consuming the vast majority of kind of social services resources, which are the ones that, you know, kind of require the great investment of the government into kind of social support services. They can predict with a reasonable degree of accuracy going back, looking at, at their early life. And I was like, well, that's a bit depressing. It's not really very good news. I mean, is, is that always inevitable? And then he said in his very Kiwi way, are you asking me if they're screwed for life? And I said, well, yes. And he said, well, no. He said, I have seen the most remarkable things happen. Some people have had the roughest start to life. And, and they, these, these people have grown up, they've had a tough childhood, and every kind of point in life has battered them. And he said, sometimes... We see these remarkable turnarounds and it's just, they may have been given the love, care and attention of just one other person. Perhaps it was an auntie, perhaps it was someone in their extended whānau family, as we say in New Zealand. Perhaps even it was a therapist, perhaps it was a teacher. He said sometimes the love and the care of one other person can turn someone's life around at any point in the lifespan. So he said they aren't, as he said, screwed for life. He said... We just need to realise that these people are often neglected by society and they're the ones that we need to kind of pluck out and give their support and attention to. So hopefully that kind of offered a bit of hope as well, which I thought was a beautiful thing. Yeah, no, that's great. And to know that the study is being done, that's then they're able to do it is fascinating. And I definitely think that I, I like how in the Netherlands that when someone when a mom gives birth, that they have a caregiver coming to her house to help her you know, do everything, take care of everything. I think it's six months now that they do it. So amazing. And then the husband, the father has paternal leave too. Paternity leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, um, yeah, there's lots of, I know you guys in the US do it pretty tough. And yeah, no, no, we're like, I was back to work in three weeks. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. The rest, the rest of the world is kind of, I guess, lots of countries in the rest of the world, we approach maternal health and it's and it's not just about the mum and it's not just about the baby it's about that family and it's about that network and it's about that network and how we can build that infrastructure to support not just a newborn baby but to support the family around that baby um, and it was interesting because at every point in the lifespan that I, I looked at in my book whether I looked at early childhood and whether I looked at the research spoke to the researchers spoke to the health experts whether I looked at late childhood whether I looked at adolescence puberty the teenage years where I looked at, you know, new, new mums, a woman going through pregnancy, you know, menopause, going, going into aged care. It didn't matter at which point in the lifespan we were looking at. It didn't matter whether it was boys or girls, males or females. Um, every researcher I said, well, you know, what do you think is the key health outcome indicator here? Most important thing you can do in supporting people through this. Is it diet? Is it exercise? Is it, and, and it was every single person said the same thing. It's about the other people. It is about the social prescription. It is about putting you know it's not about me it's about we what can we do to put the right support systems around people new mums what can we do for them how can we help kids transition into primary school what can we do to help teenagers when you know young people they're entering puberty boys and girls when teenagers are going through all that kind of turmoil of the teenage years it's always about other people it's not about me. It's about we. I love that. Oh my gosh. It's not about me. It's about we. Like young people entering puberty for the first time, that's when they often become more vulnerable to mental health issues. 
we often go, oh, well, it's, you know, young, you know, young kids. I've got a 12-year-old. Well, he's turning 12 on Monday. I have a 12-year-old too, 12-year-old girl. Yeah, they get cranky and you go, oh, it's hormones, it's hormones, it's hormones. And there's a very interesting study done here in Australia looking at children entering puberty and the development of kind of emotional turmoil and mental health issues. And if you have a little girl entering puberty early but normal, say she starts developing breasts and maybe gets a period at like 9, 10, um, early but it's not normal, you know, in the, the beginning of that kind of curve, she's far more vulnerable to develop mental health issues than a girl who goes through puberty at the same age as her friends or maybe a little bit later. But you look at the guy, the boy who enters puberty before his friends, early but normally sort of, what happens to when boys enter puberty? They grow tall, hairy and bigger, musclier and they rise in social stature. So the boy who goes through puberty earlier than his friends is protected against mental health issues versus, and everyone had that little guy in their class who still hadn't even started growing when he was about 15. He was still like little. And so you've got kids going through puberty and experiencing the hormones of puberty for the first time, but the largest determinant of their mental health is the social context which puberty is happening, not just hormones switching on or off. So I think at every stage I went through in the book, I was just so blown away that hormones were kind of opening a window, but what was the most important thing was just other people. There was always the determinant of health. So, I mean, studies of PMS, we can talk about that, perimenopause, you know, all of these, the, 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 context, the social context is the key indicator of health. And I think that I can see that and, and from early birth through every stage and how community helps with these times of transition. This is Dr. Anna Kabeca, The Girlfriend Doctor, author of best-selling books, Keto Green 16 and The Hormone Fix. I quickly wanted to share with you that my new book, Keto Green 16, is finally available. Look inside these pages, beautiful recipes, a 16-day clinically proven, effective fat loss, adrenaline boosting, anti-inflammatory plan that will make you feel great quickly. We have used this plan in clients in postmenopause, menopause, and postmenopause, as well as some gentlemen that have joined us along the way. I love it when men are joining alongside their ladies and taking part. And what we found is an increase in fat loss, a decrease in symptom scores, and a decrease in waste. So we like to see these changes. In fact, we had one client who's a 67-year-old woman who has tried many things. She was diagnosed in the past with breast cancer and had felt that she had hit a wall and she was just going to have to power through or struggle for the rest of her life. Just within one cycle of Keto Green 16, she not only felt tremendous, but she said she was happier than she's been in forever that she could remember. And she was no longer feeling like, when is the next shoe going to drop as far as waiting for another diagnosis? She felt empowered over her own body and that she has taken this control back. Not to mention losing some weight, improving her blood sugar with a decrease in hemoglobin A1C, as well as some other really important health markers. Now, we've had a gentleman in the plan. His name is Daniel, 57 years old, with 80 pounds to lose on blood pressure medicine, at risk for starting blood sugar medicine. He did one cycle of Keto Green 16 with his beautiful wife, and within 
16 days, his symptoms dropped tremendously. His blood pressure improved so much that he has to be weaned off his blood pressure medicine and he lost 30 pounds. I know, crazy, right? And what other clients have told me, especially during the quarantine, is that they felt like they were doing something good for their body. They could focus on their health and their resilience, which made them feel much stronger and healthier. And so I encourage you to check it out, Keto Green 16, and I am pleased to be on this journey with you. One thing that I caution in in my work and my practice is certainly in, in the pre-pubertal girl or in that transition, I often would see girls coming to me at age 13, 14, 12, even on birth control pills. And we're like, okay, we cannot suppress this transition. There is a rewiring that is happening, happening neurologically. And I, I see there's no difference in the perimenopause, menopause. We can't suppress and we can support, but we can't suppress the, the transition. I could talk about the re, the Wiring. I mean, we go through like puberty is not a disease, menopause is not a disease, and it's a there's a necessary hormonal transition here. And I wanted to just kind of compare and contrast <laughs> these two major life transitions in the brain. Yeah, well, that's really interesting. I mean, I guess one way there's kind of what we would call like kind of a biological clock in our brain, which sort of switches on, um, which is the indicator that you know it's time to kind of kickstart puberty, and it's the um, and, we, and we don't really know what kind of determines that, that biological clock in our brain um, to sort of switch on and send a message to the ovaries to kind of start developing and maturing and, you know, to kind of kick off menstrual cycles in girls and to kind of kickstart the testes to produce testosterone to kickstart puberty in boys. But it's interesting because the brain kind of switches the gonads on <laughs> the other end of the lifespan for girls when you want well, the other end, hopefully halfway through your lifespan it is the kind of the ovaries sort of kind of running out of steam which then have the effect on the brain so you know it, there's kind of a bit of a nice shift and I guess all the way through from puberty through to menopause pregnancies aside and whether or not you choose to take um, hormonal contraception you know there's a there's a nice kind of chit chat between the brain and, and the hormones and they're, they're kind of going back and forward but as I say I I certainly from my research don't believe that hormones are the loudest voice in the crowd I think it's other, other people which have play a large role in um, influencing a lot of our health outcomes and our you know expectations and and how, how it all kind of plays out of course we've got to be you know support that support our biological health but there's other things going on um um, if we look at how men's kind of go through the big transition through through puberty in the teenage years, that it's most likely a lot of the the sort of the changes that we start seeing happening are, are kickstarted by the hormones of puberty. We think we don't know, or whether the two just kind of channel along together. We see that if you were to look at you know a thousand girls and a thousand boys, the girls' brains start developing about a year or so before the boys, and that's kind of typically what we see. Girls enter puberty a year or so before boys. Boys eventually catch up. Of course, there's always people at either end of that that normal. And girls and boys, but a bit later. But what we see is that a lot of the subcortical structures, the structures that kind of sit a little bit deeper in the brain, which are involved in things like interpreting what is happening in our body, kind of regulating our emotional responses, these kind of start developing earlier. 
an adult-like state earlier than the prefrontal cortical part of the brain, which is the part that sits in behind our forehead, which is involved in kind of all sorts of things from being able to do algebra to social cognition to judgment and planning and reasoning and being able to kind of what to pay attention to and what not to pay attention to and importantly being able to regulate emotions. So a lot of the difficulty with managing emotions that we see in young people is just a bit of a mental mismatch between the emotional part of the brain kind of develop faster than the kind of the top-down control part of the brain. I think it's important to realise, though, that in particular, this prefrontal cortical part of the brain is going through this exquisite period of heightened plasticity, a critical period of development, in much the same way that perhaps infants and toddlers' brains go through when they're learning language. So the brain go through this exquisite phase of plasticity kind of around ages three, in which they absolutely require learning language to wire up in the appropriate way to set you up for being able to speak a language for the rest of the lifespan. Teenagers' brains are also going through this exquisite phase of plasticity in which they are learning how to regulate emotions. They are learning how to understand the thoughts and the feelings of other people. They are understanding that, you know, there's a shift from the kind of the family of origin through to friends and family, actually they're at their kind of their peak for learning how to plan and judge and reason. It's not that they are really bad at it, they're actually exquisitely tuned to learn how to do that. So we see a lot of those processes started off by by pubertal hormones, but the hormones almost kind of open the window then for the outside world and the experiences we have to wire the brain up in the appropriate way. Now, when we go to the other end of the sort of the female reproductive lifespan, we do see some changes take place, but they're nowhere near as significant a shift as what we see when, when we enter puberty. And what we see is when you got, you know, you start going through kind of perimenopause, the kind of the ovaries sort of in some months it'll all carry on as normal. You know, your hormonal fluctuations and shifts will carry on as normal and other months it'll be, you know, there'll be heaps of hormones and next month there'll be hardly any. And what we think is happening, we don't completely understand the effect that that's having on the brain yet. It's a very, very new area of neuroscience research. But we know that the brain has receptors for estrogen. We think it has probably a similar distribution of receptors for progesterone, but we don't really actually know an adult human woman yet. We only understand what rats and mice from the research lab have, but we know that there's estrogen receptors in the brain and when the estrogen sort of starts, you know, that kind of stilted conversation instead of a nice flowing back and forward conversation, we see the brain is going to react to this kind of drop or kind of sputtering of estrogen levels. Now, one of the most significant changes that we see and one of the few that's very well understood from the perspective of neurobiology is changes that take place in the hypothalamus, in particular the part of the hypothalamus, which is a very part of the brain buried quite deep down, which is involved in temperature regulation, so thermoregulation. So one of the most common symptoms if women are going to have a symptom going through perimenopause um, and into the menopause is hot flashes or hot flushes, whatever you call them, wherever you live in the world. And what we think is happening is that in our hypothalamus we have kind of like a thermostat it's set like that with a lower level and an upper level. And what we think happens is when you're going through perimenopause without with this kind of unreliable influence of estrogen is that the thermostat kind of gets a whole lot narrower. 
So your kind of set point is kind of a whole lot narrower. So you don't have to get that much hotter or indeed that much cooler. You don't need to, your body temperature doesn't need to increase that much until suddenly a signal is being sent to your entire physiology. Oh my God, it's really, really hot in here. So we haven't, you know, so the thermostat, the kind of the top level's gone down and the bottom level's gone up a bit. And that we think may be part of the, the reason why lots of women then experience hot flashes and night sweats. And I certainly, you know, from my own personal perspective, after writing the book and, and thinking, oh, menopause, that's something that's a long way off in my future. I'm now 45, about a year ago, started getting night sweats. It's driving me absolutely bonkers. And I'm pretty fit, pretty healthy, eat a pretty good diet. And I was like, well, here we go. Now, you probably might disagree with this. However, I eventually went and talked to my OBGYN, which is not really an obstetrician when you reach this age anymore. They're more of a just a GYN, not the OB. We forget about the OB bit. And I went back on oral contraceptive pill, which I had been on for many, many, many years, all the way through my 20s and 30s, up until I had my kids. And it had very, it had been, a, I'd never had any side effects. It was always suited me very well. So went back on that. Because I did what I know a lot of, you know, the jury's kind of out. But certainly for me and from my research, instead of dealing with these kind of fluctuations, you know, just tramline them and and put in a bit of uh, synthetic estrogen, which I know a lot of people might be quite, quite uncomfortable with that, but the synthetic estrogen then just tramline my hormonal levels. Within a month, the night sweats went away. I went back to, I can sleep. I can win the gold medal Olympic for sleeping. Sleeping really well and everything just kind of settled back into place. My hairdresser said to me the other day, my hair has changed. It's got thicker again. My skin has improved. And I'm like, I love this synthetic estrogen business. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, we're going to argue about this there. We are going to argue about this. No, because really, because the, it's, yeah, personally for me, that was my my choice to manage the fluctuations because I couldn't see, knowing my personal health history and my how I live my life, that any improvements I could I could make in my lifestyle, they would have to be so you know my lifestyle is pretty good. So where was I going to see a gain? And certainly the literature, the scientific literature shows that for someone with my personal history, that it's not causing me any any damage. And I tell you what, no night sweats is a great thing. I know, no night sweats are great. Let me tell you, this is though my area, this is certainly my area of specialty. And, and the estrogen, the usually in, in birth control pills, we typically, it's a, more of a bioidentical estrogen, but the progestin, the progestin, not bioidentical progesterone is what the problem is. And so this is my concern with this perimenopausal, let me just stop your symptoms. If we did that at puberty, what would happen? To what happens to the nervous system of the growing, the, the aging child? And why would that be any different now? And I, I see this, this suppression of, of the ovarian production of its own natural hormones as potentially doing more harm than good. When we want to treat the symptoms, we do. If we need birth control, I mean, let's do an IUD, non-hormonal IUD for birth control if we need it. But at, at this stage in our life where we really do want to decrease any toxic hormones in our body and allow this transition naturally, but support that bottom line, becoming more insulin. So I'm going to send you my book, The Hormone Fix, because I always say it takes more than hormones to fix our hormones. But look, I am on bioidentical hormones. I do a trochee, a submucosal 
of a combination of a little bit of S, tiny little bit of estrogen, a little bit of bioidentical progesterone, but I use my Pure Balance progesterone and pregnenolone cream because I want to support from the top down and a little DHEA and a little testosterone to support me. I'm 53 right now, 53 with a 12 year old. So you, you're, you know, I'm ahead of you a little bit on this one, but that shift makes a difference and we get a good night's sleep, we get restored and we also get this clarity back because many people don't realize the neuro, you know, I mean, I, there is a neurologic consequence to progestins. And of course, oral birth control increases inflammatory markers such as our HSCRP. So if we can do this through herbs and nutrition, I'm going to send you Mighty Maca too, adrenal adaptogenic blend of over 30 superfoods, some of which I learned about on my travels around the world in, in New Zealand. Zealand and Australia as well as other places in the world. But when we support the adrenal glands and support the ovaries, then number one, then our natural hormone levels improve. And so we get that communication system. What I am concerned about and what I've seen in this perimenopause, whether it's high-dose bioidentical hormones or high-dose birth control pills, when we suppress that natural ovarian production, we're interfering with the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal gonadal access. And we're also increasing thyroid dysfunction, we, you know, and so that's the, you know, increasing sex hormone binding globulin, inc increasing TBG, thyroid binding, binding globulin. And then we, next step is hypothyroidism. Do you think that this is just a problem at perimenopause or would you not think that any woman at any age should be on the or birth control pill? No, I, I, I'm an obstetrician and gynecologist. I would still prescribe it for the patient that that was the best choice for them at the time, right? And even, you know, with my daughters for a short time as needed, that was prescribed. But again, never without supporting detoxification, never without supporting methylated B vitamins and magnesium for sure, right? There are some reasons, but in, in our family too, and with myself, not hormonal IUD. And I feel pretty strongly about the body's communication system because there's more to this brain hormone connection. Because when I have women who have had their ovaries removed, right, they go through an immediate like castration, right? They go through this, they go through this early menopause, but yet they hit this time period. 45, 50 in this age range again. And the, all of a sudden they're getting hot flashes again. All of a sudden they're experiencing something again. So there's more to our hormonal clock, which I'm fascinating, the brain hormone gonadal connection. So the adrenals are probably doing something there, but there's something more to this connection than just our, our you know, the ovarian signals. And that fascinates me. And what we do know too from research, when a woman has her ovaries removed before age 65, anytime, 35, 45, and, and shutting down ovarian production, not much different, that they're at increased risk of cardiovascular mortality and morbidity, you know, cardiovascular disease, over 50% increased risk of cardiovascular disease if we remove ovaries before age age 65 compared to others. So even our postmenopausal ovaries are still part of this communication network. And whether we do this transitional hormonal support now or when we eventually, you know, remove the birth control pills, at some point we switch from birth control pills to, bi you know, hormones, only bioidentical hormones at this point, bioidentical progesterone, DHEA, and then we support that individual at that time. I think that that does make a, a more physiologic sense. It does make more physiologic sense. And I think that's where I really would love to, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm just trying to figure it out. I'm trying to understand, you know, what is the best way to transition? Just like with puberty, like the best way when I have pu 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 
brutal girls or girls struggling. Yeah, I mean, I guess um, there's lots of different ways to approach this in lots of different parts of the world, and certainly that's my 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 personal approach has been to manage it that way, and it's working really well so far. And my conversations with my OBGY and here we were looking at, well, you know, what is my personal risk? What do we understand about my experiences on the pill thus far in, in life? And so far, I'm feeling pretty well. I'm feeling pretty healthy. I mean, I don't know why a girl going through puberty would necessarily be, have to be on the on the pill or not, but I don't think that most people make these decisions, decisions willy-nilly. But as I said, what we understand is that the... When you go through puberty, that kind of opens up, that kind of kickstarts the brain going through that phase of development. And it's not the greater determinant is not just hormones, is not just our biology. It is the experience we have and all of the other things that are kind of going on in the world. I suppose there's always a lot of controversy around the use of hormones and hormone replacement from whether it's from an oral contraceptive pill or from some other type of source when we go through perimenopause and menopause and that goes back to the the kind of the the, the fear that that came out of all of the women's health studies right right so what's happening to our brain in the menopause creating that brain fog well, this is what the chicken and egg scenario is, and we call it the chicken and egg scenario because we don't necessarily know is, and what we tend to see is in women who are feeling foggy and fuzzy and like everything's kind of like they're sort of struggling, it's hard to know whether that is a directly attributable to hormones or is it because they're getting night sweats and so they're waking up on and off all through the night. And so they're not sleeping well. And once you're not sleeping well, I mean, you only have to have one bad night's sleep to feel pretty rubbish. If you're not sleeping well consistently for months and months and months, you know, what are all of the kind of the knock-on effects that then are happening? Because without a good night's sleep, you're disrupting a whole host of hormones in your body. You're probably not going to be eating well. You're not going to be exercising well. You're not going to be able to manage your emotions. Your social connections are going to start coming down. So this is what we understand from the perspective of neuroscience and the research that's been done is we don't know. We can't say the hormones are directly impacting emotions. And certainly if we look outside of the menopause and we look at other points in the lifespan where hormones change and fluctuate, for example, taking a look at experiences of women experiencing kind of premenstrual the irritability and um, emotional kind of turmoil lots of women experience before their period, is that solely attributable to hormones? And the research from the neuroscience perspective is kind of out on that. And as I say, it's not necessarily always the loudest voice in the crowd. So to make the assumption that hormones are the driving factor at every point, I think narrows our focus too much. And especially if our focus is on the wrong hormones, if we're looking at estrogen and progesterone instead of insulin and cortisol, if we're looking at, you know, if, if we, you know, I think too, the combina- the the interaction, especially in the transition of menopause, how important, you know, our neurotransmitters are. So looking at our hormones, and this is where I think I'm a gynecologist and obstetrician. I trained at Emory University. I learned the hormonal pathways in and out. I had to memorize them and recite them, okay? So I know these hormonal pathways and what was missed were these major hormones, insulin, cortisol, and oxytocin. We know oxytocin so, I mean, it really is looking at all the reproductive hormones, right? That's important. But if we don't look at 
the effect of, of these uh, other major hormones to a degree that we understand the reproductive hormones, I think that does, that does put us at certainly at a disadvantage. But also the fact that, you know, we need estrogen to produce serotonin. Estrogen assists in serotonin production. Progesterone, you know, is necessary for GABA, GABA production, you know, and, and testosterone is, is necessary and, and assist in dopamine production. So we look at the neurotransmitters, right? The hormonal communication between our Oh, and, and, and they're all, they're all very intimately entwined. Absolutely. Yes. And, and how, when we, when we do, uh, you know, manipulate one, we're affecting another and that cascade. So I think it is, it's such a beautiful, and it, I, I love it because I love now that, you know, the work of Dr. Lisa Moscone, your work, looking at the brain and women and now imaging, imaging the brain and looking at how, how the transitions affect us. And there's so much more, and I know there's so much more, we're out of time, but I want to, I, I wish we could delve in. I'm looking forward to sharing your book with our audience and just all your work. So Sarah, please share, you know, where people can get the Women's Brain book and how they can follow your blog, your uh, what you're doing and, and connect with you too. And, and again, for our audience, I want to thank you guys for being here. And it's so important. We learn and we open our mind and just continue to learn and educate. This field is a evolving, especially as it comes to women's and women's brain. And again, we, we love that we're mysterious, don't we, y'all? <laughs> yeah. And I think, and I think that's the thing. There's, there's more that we don't know than what we do know, and, um, and I think that there's lots of paths yes. yeah. <laughs> that we can all choose to follow. And really, it's about being educated and informed, and working with a healthcare provider that will help you make the right decisions for you, and not a fear-based way, but quite a calm. Just take into account a lot of, a lot of the influences. And as I say, I think that the loudest voice in the crowd is is the people that we can have around us to help support us through whatever kind of ha- is happening. And, and I think that that's pretty clear on a global level. Uh, April 2020, we're all being told to, you know, stay physically apart and everyone's really struggling with that. And I think that that's a pretty clear. I always say I think the social prescription is the one that we should be writing. Um, and I think... Um, we're learning that <laughs> and we're in a little boot camp to learn that at the moment um, globally. But yeah, if people want to kind of follow my work and um, learn a little bit more about what I do, so my website is drsarahmackay.com. If you go to drsarahmackay.com forward slash toolkit, you can download a applied brain science toolkit, which just has lots of sort of tips and ideas for health and well-being, covering um, things like you know, sleep and exercise and all of the, the kinds of important good things we should do, as well as social connection um, for supporting brain health. And I'm on Instagram, on Facebook, and um, really always enjoy sharing kind of you know the latest contemporary neuroscience. And how you know we can make that that useful and practical and applied in all of our lives. I love it. Thank you. So, with that social connection, what are the hormones that are most involved in that? So, neurotransmitters and hormones that are most involved in that social connection. And I'm following you on Instagram right now because I don't think I was following you on Instagram. I think um, we can be quite reductionist and, and look at like you know how does a human another interaction with another human and, and, and change, you know, our biochemistry. But I, I think, you know, we've got to kind of take a, a, a big picture look at that. But we understand quite a lot about social cognition and social brain networks. 
which go through this exquisite, as I said, period of development during the adolescent years. And then this other really newly found out, newly discovered big shift during pregnancy. It's almost, and we assume it must have to do with the biochemical shift of pregnancy because it doesn't happen in the first few weeks after pregnancy. Um, it's almost as if it's Mother Nature's shortcut to try <laughs> to try and ensure that um, pregnancy just doesn't prepare our body for nurturing a baby, but prepares our kind of our mind for um, looking after a baby and then bringing in that kind of that tribe of people around us. Now, I mean, oxytocin is kind of one one part of that, but oxytocin has a sort of a sister hormone called vasopressin, and none of these hormones ever work in isolation. These neurohormones don't work in isolation from, you know, brain networks and our entire sort of physiology um, and, and every aspect of that. But we one nice kind of idea perhaps people could take away is that um, oxytocin is one of many, along with vasopressin, many kind of neurohormones which is released when we connect socially with other people. But it's also interesting to know that it is also released when we are undergoing stressful experiences. When our stress levels go up, oxytocin also goes up and it kind of can have a bit of a seesaw effect. Certainly, we know it does in animals. We assume in humans, but we don't know. There's a bit of a seesaw effect between one of the stress hormones, cortisol and oxytocin, so they can kind of almost play off each other. And we understand that when we're very, very stressed, oxytocin is released almost kind of like as our default mechanism to encourage us to reach out to other people. Because what is the best way to reduce stress levels? It's to think about instead of me, it is to think about we. Because no one's story, life story is about themselves, it's about other people. So when we're stressed, it's almost like we automatically want to reach out and connect with other people. So that's why people are in a real sort of difficult struggle right now because we, everyone's a bit stressed out about this pandemic and we want to kind of connect with other people, but at the same time we've been told we can't. We have to be physically different from each other. So it'll be interesting, you know, it'll be really interesting to have a, have a look. We could do some kind of study on, on, on what is happening about biochemistry. Yeah, but I mean, I, I also think that there's, like I say, these things are all linked <laughs> and kind of connected. So how to unpack, every, it's very hard to kind of be really reductionist and unpack everything as, as separate from each other. Yeah, so, so true. Thank you, Dr. Mackay, for joining us today. I want to thank all our audience for listening. That was Dr. Sarah Mackay, neuroscientist from Australia, living from New Zealand, living in Australia, in Sydney, Australia. So I've enjoyed our conversation together. You guys know how passionate I am about hormones, how I am about physiology and enhancing our body's natural ability to balance. And it certainly does. It certainly is complicated and not simple. And we all do absolutely have to look into all the ins and outs of what is working for us and what is working against us and, and understanding that. So I am just thrilled to, to share with you this information, open your minds to dig in more and in, into brain science, into neuroscience, as well as to into each and every one of your potential because 
this, I mean, that's it. We have unlimited potential and we have so much going on in our world that we can do right now. So much that we have in our control that will make a difference in our life. I want to share with you a testimonial that I received from a longtime client, Angie Ryle. She shared that um, regards to Mighty Maca Greens, we were talking about this for stress management and, and she's been my client probably for over uh, over 15, maybe longer years. She wrote in as a, to read this to you, as a lifelong endurance athlete and with 23 years in orthopedic and performance medicine, I know how important recovery is to training and overall well-being. The ability to recover or not between workouts can be a determining factor in how hard and how frequently one is able to train, how susceptible one is to injury, and whether training has a positive effect and builds a body up or has an overall catabolic effect. Both physical load, as in training for something, having a highly active lifestyle or a physically demanding job, and Mental stress can cause excessive acidity in the body, which can make you feel tired and cause a whole cascade of unwanted reactions in the endocrine and immune systems, as well as musculoskeletal system. She writes, I have enjoyed using Mighty Maca Plus to manage excessive acidity levels produced from long training and thus accelerate recovery. I also enjoy the mixing up a glass in the afternoons if I'm experiencing an energy dip. I feel like I'm feeling feeding my body the nutrients it needs to balance acidity and energize my systems without stimulants that eventually lead me to another energy dip later. An unexpected benefit has been noticing better digestion with regular use of the product. The single serving packets are easy, travel and pour into any water bottle. Great product and always only the purest ingredients. Thank you, Dr. Anna. Thank you for giving me this tool uh, approximately a decade ago. And I love you and I love your work. Well, thank you to Angie Riles for writing in and sharing that. I also want to remind each and every one of you that, again, empowering yourself is key. And with that, celebrating my new book, Keto Green 16, we have a number of pre-order bonuses, a number of order bonuses that you receive, plus a gift code to the store. So a, a beautiful, generous discount code to the store and some great stuff on our resources page when you pre-order or when you buy Keto Green 16. So I'm excited about that and sharing this, my latest work with you. And all was just at, based on our discussion today, how important it is to understand our hormones as they shift and as what we can do through a lifestyle and natural approach as, as much as possible. Of course, always understanding what we need to do and with appropriate informed consent, making the best decisions for us with the information. I do also say when there's, you know, one thing that I'm so strong about is getting in tune with my intuition, getting in tune with what is right for me and being able to discern what is right for me it might not be right for someone else, but what is right for me? What is right for you? And what is the best information that we have in order to make the best decision for us. And if we're 
hesitant, not sure. Like my friend JJ Virgin says, if it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no. We we need to we need to listen to that. We need to listen to that voice and also know when sometimes and maybe that's a fear-driven voice and we need not to listen to that voice. So with that, be sure to get Keto Green 16. I'm excited to share that with you. Support your adrenals with Mighty Maca Plus. Support your life with a lot of oxytocin. And again, creating social community. So this is Dr. Anna. Thank you for being here. I am here for you. And I'm so happy to be your girlfriend, doctor. Bye till next time.